master of the property, not to actually live there, to live somewhere else. And um, the definition of steward is somebody who manages someone else's wealth. He doesn't own the wealth, but he can enjoy it and manage it wisely for the sake of the master. In this case, however, the steward disregarded or forgot that the wealth belonged to the master and he squandered it. And when his master calls him in to audit the books and call him into account, he comes up with a clever plan. He knows he's being fired, and he says, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg, and his solution to the problem shows that he didn't have any scruples. He didn't care about his master's possessions. He was first concerned with himself, and he decides to discount the debts owed to the master so that he can carry favor with his debtors. Now, one debtor owed his master 800 gallons of olive oil. That's the oil from about 450 trees. It's a lot of olive oil. And this debtor, he says, cuts him over half. And the debtor was also dishonest because he did it. <laughs> the second one owned the master of thousand bushels of wheat. Again, a huge amount. But that debtor, he says, cut it by 200 bushels. And that debtor is also dishonest, and he complies. So he seems to really changed in the world. And so in his discounting, this this shrewd manager is doing one of two things, both of which demonstrate him to be dishonest. He may be reducing the amount that they owed, thus cheating his master, or another possibility is that he's removing his dishonestly charged commission, so in the end he's actually charging an honest rate, but in either case, he's seeing ahead which is the point of the parable. But also notice that the master in the parable compliments the steward. He goes, yeah, you're dishonest. I'm so inspired. Wow, he says, you're real smart. Let's look at the, the second part of verse 8. 16, verse 8. Jesus says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here, Jesus suggests that we should focus on God's kingdom as intensely and with the cleverness of this dishonest steward. And now, before we judge this steward too severely, I think we need to be take a look at how faithful we are at dealing with what God has given to us. Now, whether we have a little or a lot, we are stewards of what God has given us. And some of us have a whole lot of stuff, and some of us don't have much, but we're still stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And the day is coming when we will answer to God for what we've done with what He has given us. Now, a good, now, let me say this. I don't provide any income from the church. I don't have a dog in this fight. But, a good beginning for Christian giving is 10% of your income. People would ask me, should I tithe on the net or the gross? And my answer is, do you want, which one do you want God to bless? Your gross or your net? Um, but, we derive uh, spiritual benefit from our pastors, from the ministry of this church, and everything that goes on here, and we should be faithful to give to the church, to support our pastors and our church and pay the bills and all that stuff. Um, that's an important thing. Um, so, but it's not just money that we're stewards of. We're also stewards of time. And the parable's lesson is that the steward, as honest as he was, used a brief window of time to prepare for the future. Time is fleeting. And we should use the minutes God has given to us wisely. And we're also through to the gifts and abilities God has given us. And 1 
First Peter four ten, uh, Peter reminds us that we should use those gifts faithfully. It says that each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In other words, we are to use our abilities to share the gospel, to minister to the hurting, to encourage each other, because one day we will get an account to God for the way that we use those things. Right after Heather's brother, my wife Heather's brother, graduated from Northeastern University in Boston, uh, there was an academic conference I went to also, and I stayed with him. At that time, uh, he was living in a boarding house in a tiny room. I slept on an inflatable mattress as a foot of his bed. He didn't have a car. He was working for Massachusetts Financial Services and studying for his chartered financial analyst certification. And he, he didn't have any possessions at all. So that's what was in that little tiny bedroom. And at Massachusetts Financial Services, at that time, was still very formal. In his closet, I remember he had his suits lined up, blue and gray business suits. And he said, I'm either working, running, he likes it, he's a big runner, eating, sleeping, or studying for this exam. That's all I do. That's my focus in life. And saving money. He didn't have a car, he had a house to deal with. He was very intently focused on that. And the investors and business people of this world sometimes shame us when it comes to focusing and intensity. Because it's a rare person who can focus on the invisible reality of God's kingdoms with the kind of intensity that Scott had. He's living like a monk. And all he was doing was saving money and studying for that exam. The lesson of verse 9 that there will come a day when we can no longer make money or use our talents for God and we should use our talents and our money while we can in a way that provides for an abundant welcome in eternity. In other words, what we do with what we have now affects not the fact but the quality of life in eternity. As he clearly teaches in Scripture, and it's just as evident in the teaching of Christ that we can store up treasure in heaven based on what we do with treasure on earth. That's the teaching of this parable. And then there's a lesson of faithfulness. This is the last part of this passage, and this is uh, 16, 10 through 13. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with your riches? And if not, if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Followers of Christ are faithful in using money are also devoted to using true riches. That is, matters of spiritual and eternal importance. And in contrast, those who are unfaithful in using money are unfaithful in matters of eternal significance. Before I met Heather, as a young man, I was very focused on money, my possessions, my attitude was the money was in my mind and nobody else's. And I had a car that I liked very much. It was a good car. It was a 1983 Caprice Classic, also known as a living room on wheels or a landmark. <laughs> the kind of car that was good when it's a child. Had all the power features. Great car. My friend said he wanted to borrow it to get some people at the airport. And I said, no, it's not a car. And the next morning I woke up to go get it to go somewhere. And someone had stolen it that night. And I thought, okay, God, I got the message. It's yours. Why of everything I have is yours. You can take it if you want to. By the way, I got the 
too far back. The police found it. The insurance company repaired it, and I got the tools they used to hot bar the car. I think I used to still have those markers. You know, you still have markers from there. The old saying goes, show me how a person uses their money, and I can tell you the condition of their spiritual life. Now, this parable has mainly to do with material wealth. Why is Jesus so concerned with that aspect of our lives? It's because the love of money has a seductive power. If, and if we are to be single-mindedly devoted to the Lord, we can't succumb to the love of money. We cannot love or serve two masters any more than we can walk two directions simultaneously. And Jesus demands total integrity, and that's devotion to him and everything. And then God's perspective, this is the, the last part, 15, uh, 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They said to them, and he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So finally we come to the reaction of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were outwardly religious, but Jesus was more concerned with their hearts. And Jesus tells us that they love money more than they love God. And in this regard, they're no better than the tax collectors and the other questionable people who were following the Lord, or the dishonest people of that day. And when they heard this parable, they turned their noses up to Jesus. First Samuel says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And then don't miss the impact of that final sentence in verse 15. What is highly valued among men is detestable or vile or an abomination to the human translated in English in God's sight. Strong language. About as strong as you can get without using profanity in English. Many professed Christians make the same mistake as the Pharisees. They honor God with their lips, but they live like the world, and that's an abomination to God. Now, I don't know all the reasons for the abomination to God, but at least one reason God doesn't like it is that when we love money and we only live for ourselves, is that we chase the wrong thing. In the end, chasing money and looking out for number one leads to loneliness, regret, and misery. Harvard University has spent millions and billions of dollars on something called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. You can look, probably the best, easiest reading is the Harvard Gazette. You can look more just a deep down deep rabbit hole on this. Um, they started this study in 1939, and there were 724 men in it originally. It started during the Great Depression. About half of them were sophomores at Harvard College. John F. Kennedy was among them. The other half were teenagers from the poorest neighborhoods in Boston. And they followed these men. There's only a handful of them still alive that are in their 90s. But they followed them over, um, well, now 82 years. They're following their, their wives, their children, their grandchildren. There's about 2,000 people in the study now. They go back to them every two years. And they do interviews with them, they do blood work, they do brain scans, they do physicals, all kinds of stuff. And instead of the men who are in their 90s, who were the poor kids from Boston, will often ask the researchers, why do you want to keep asking me questions and studying me? Well, my life is not that interesting. It's if the Harvard College guys never say that. <laughs> but over 82 years of collecting mountains of data and all this medical evidence, the researchers have found that the keys to a life of joy are good relationships and serving others. Not money and not possessions. The men who have the most joy 
themselves in relationships with family and friends, and they also volunteered, giving time and money to something greater than themselves. Amazing, huh? Now, Harvard University had spent millions of dollars figuring that out, but they never go any further than five years ago. That's ancient wisdom. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. In Acts 20, 35, when Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, he says, And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work you must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Galatians 5.13. Our pastors just went through that. Galatians. You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So there's no secret to a life of joy. People who serve others don't worry much about the meaning of life because they found it. And coming to a church service, every uh, worship service like we're in now, certainly has value in teaching. I'm not saying it doesn't have participate in today, so that shows you I think it's important. But it's hard to make anything more than a superficial connection on Sunday morning. So I want to put in a plug for our life groups. Now, Heather and I, uh, most of them in our home, we're going to be going to the Gospel of Luke. We've had to cancel for the past few weeks for various reasons. We do plan to make this Wednesday. Uh, but it's a life group where you can make deep connections and talk about matters of faith. And really invest in relationships. One of the problems we have here in Alaska is that a lot of us are geographically separated from our families. And well, in that case, uh, it's a great opportunity for your church to your extended family. We've certainly seen that in our life group. There are other life groups in the church, and I talked to uh, Jim and Jan. Jim, you want to say something about the Everyday Kindness group? You get a chance to get to a mic here. That's so you can talk about making connections there.
So, you know, Pastor 